Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 will be in verses 16 through 23. So I want to wish you all a happy new year. And uh, as we're thinking about New Year's, we think about a season of resolutions, New Year's resolutions. We make a lot of New Year's resolutions. And I think a lot of us laugh because back in the day when I used to actually work out, I would take the first two to three weeks of January off from the gym because I knew it would be packed for two, to week, two weeks, maybe three, and then it would be open again and I could go back to working out, right? And so we laugh because we know people don't really continue. We make these, these grand plans. We say, I'm going to take time to start reading my Bible daily. And by the time we get to Leviticus, we start to slow down and we start to, to, not, to, be able to not be able to grind through anymore. So why do we make these New Year's resolutions? I would argue that we make New Year's resolutions because we want to be happy. We work out and try to be in shape because we want to be healthy, and being healthy makes us happy. Or we save money. We abstain from sugar or coffee because we want to be healthy, and unhealthy makes us sad. We resolve to save more money because we want to be more comfortable, which makes us happy. We all want some type of self-improvement to make us happy. So don't, we, don't you think we all have this built-in desire to be happy? So I'm going to put this statement out there, and this is a two-part sermon, so you're going to have to bear with me and come back next week, because I cannot explain everything that needs to be explained in this 40 minutes that we're going to be together, all right? So just bear with me, hold, suspend some of your, your mental judgments that you're going to make initially off the bat. All right, so this is what I'm going to say. Do you want happiness? Holiness is the only way to happiness. And Christ is the only way to holiness. I'm going to say this again. You may want to write it down if you have a pencil handy or your smartphone. Put it in the notes. Holiness is the only way to happiness. And Christ is the only way to holiness. And so today we're going to see that human attempts to get happiness ultimately fail. Human attempts to get happiness ultimately fail. So join me in Colossians chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 16 through 23. This is part 8 or something of Colossians. We've been in Colossians for quite a while, and we've just really been enjoying the richness of this letter. And so Paul is going to speak to this, and he says this, starting in verse 16, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Verse 18, let no one condemn you by delighting in aesthetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated with empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished, held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. 
Verse 20, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although they have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Let's pray. Father God, this is a lot to take in. This is a lot of um, information that we have to grapple with today. Father, I pray that as I speak, that I provide clarity to a confusing issue that a lot of Christians struggle with. I pray that those that hear these words understand what it is your word is trying to say. Father God, hide me behind your cross. Let your words be the words that you would have me say. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So remember that Paul has been writing to the Colossians. These Colossian people, he's never met. And he's gotten a report from a church planner. He said, five years ago, I planted this church because of your preaching in Ephesus, Paul. And he runs to Paul, who is in prison in Rome. And he says this. He says, Paul, these Christians are doing really good. They're really holding fast to the faith. However, there are some false teachers that have entered in and are pressuring them to add to Christ, to say that what you have in Christ is not enough to make you holy, to make you right, to make you live a pleasing manner to God. And so Paul writes to them, and he encourages them in the first part of this book. And what I like about Paul is he gives you an indicative. He gives you a, um, a statement of truth, and then he says, and that is why you must do this. He doesn't just say, do this, do this, do this. He says, because Christ died on the cross, you don't live in that world anymore. He gives you a statement and then a command. And so in this, we see that his goal is to mature them. And you can look earlier in the passage where he continually repeats to mature you in Christ, to bring you along in Christ. And so Paul is writing, and he's being very specific now. And this is, this is the interesting part of this passage because we learn kind of what these false teachers are teaching. We get to see a little bit the nature of this false teaching. And this false teaching is ultimately about self-made religion. So Paul is saying this. He says, you grow in holiness or happiness, not by legalism, not by mysticism, not by aestheticism, but through Christ Jesus alone. I know this is some big words. We're going to unpack them. Don't worry. It took me a long time to look these up in the dictionary. So we're going we're gonna to work through these, okay? So we see three types of ways these false teachers are encouraging holiness. Legalism, mysticism, and aestheticism. So let's define holiness for a minute. Because we have to define holiness before we move on to what these false teachers are doing. So holiness, this is a statement from a guy named Thomas Brooks. He's an old Puritan guy who wrote, Holiness, the Only Way to Happiness. It's a very fascinating book, and he bases it off of Hebrews. But we're going to say this. Holiness, this is what he says. Holiness differs nothing from happiness but in name. Holiness is happiness in the bud. And happiness is holiness at the full. 
Holiness is nothing but the quintessence of holiness. So he's arguing that holiness and happiness are similar because without holiness, no one will see the Lord, is what Hebrews 13 says. So the word holy is in various forms and occurs more than 600 times in the Bible. We heard it, the thrice holy God that we heard in Isaiah that we talked about this, this morning in our call to worship. We talked about the holiness of God as we presented the, uh, the elements. And so we see that the book of Leviticus is devoted to the subject of holiness. The idea of holiness is woven everywhere in the fabric of Scripture. But most important, in Leviticus 11.44, God specifically commands us to be holy like the Lord God is holy. So we're going to keep it really basic today, but this is a much broader topic, and we could talk about it for hours and days and weeks and months and probably the rest of my life. We could devote to the topic of holiness. But we're going to talk briefly on the subject. So we have a responsibility to pursue holiness. That means that we are to seek to be morally blameless, and completely separated from sin. That's our responsibility, and we'll unpack it as we go. So becoming holy is also called sanctification. Now, this is an important Bible word that you need to know. Just like surgeons have specific terms and words, just like military men and women have specific terms that they use for different equipment, it's kind of like a, a vocational lingo. Sanctification should be the Christian's lingo. So sanctification is defined like this. The gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which he delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God, and enables us to live lives pleasing to him. So that's a lot. That's a mouthful. So remember, sanctification is, is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, making us more like Christ. Now, I don't want you to think that sanctification is the same thing as justification. So justification is being made in right standing with God. You are saved. Sanctification builds on this justification. You are already saved. But Christ, God, Christ in you, is working to make you more like Christ. Not only have you been made pure once, but there's a continuing process, all right? So sanctification also has many elements, and we're not going to go into all the elements because it's, com- it's confusing again, but it's a progressive type of sanctification that we're talking about here because we grew up before our justification, before our sanctification, we've grown up with these habits, sin habits. We spend our lives developing sin habits because that's the nature that we were born into. All right, so don't get justification and sanctification. What I'm saying here is not that you have to work your way to salvation. That's not what I'm saying. So just just so you know, salvation is different than sanctification because sanctification is involving us as well. So it is through our union with Christ in his death that we are delivered from the dominion of sin. If you read through Colossians 1 and 2 all over again, you'll see that that 
Paul is pointing to Christ and says, you no longer live in the dark world, you live in the light. Why are you walking like you did back then? You are in this new world. Remember the cleansing that Christ has done in your life. Remember this. So he says this. When, when I want, Paul says this in Romans. He says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So we may not like the fact that we have this lifelong struggle with sin. But the more we realize it and accept it, the, the better equipped we will be to deal with it. The more we discover about the strength of indwelling sin, the less we feel its effects. To the extent that we discover this law of sin within ourselves, we will abhor it and fight it. Romans eight thirteen. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit, pay attention to that, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's a combined effort. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says this. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. We are called to live in purity. But this is hard to do. It's not easy. I'm not up here saying that it's something that we will accomplish immediately, and I'm not saying that it's something that's easy. This is hard. In fact, it's hard, and the false teachers in Colossians church are trying to be holy. They don't have these nefarious motives. They're not coming up with these ideas to kill this church necessarily. And they might be. There might be elements. But overall, I think most of us don't become Christians saying, I plan to be a hypocrite. That's what I want to do, right? We don't. We we don't say, I'm going to become a Christian and live a life of sin. We don't do that. But guess what? We do it. And what is, the, what is one of the first things that people will say if you say, hey, what do you think about Christians? You ask a non-believer. Perhaps you're a non-believer in here, and you're thinking, you know, these Christians are all hypocrites. That's the thing that I hear the most from non-believers. What do you think about Christians? They're hypocrites. Well, why do you say that? Well, because they say they have this, they're dead to sin, but they live in sin, right? And we don't want to be hypocrites. So let's, let's look and see some of the ways that people try not to be hypocrites. Let's talk about legalism. Verse 16 and 17 cover legalism. Now, now I want to make a, a, a quick statement. All these are kind of intermixed, but I've broken them down for ease of understanding. So just because the legalism section and the mysticism section and the asceticism section I've broken them apart. They're all really kind of together. And these false teachers have combined aspects of all of this. All right, so legalism. Verse 16, he says this. He says, therefore, now remember, therefore, when we see the word therefore, what do we do? We ask, what, what is it therefore, right? It's therefore because the previous section talked about how Christ is victorious. He has killed sin. He has cleansed you of sin. All right, so what is it there for? So because Christ did all this, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. This makes me think that when I read this, that this is a a form of Judaism that has entered into this church. These, These are really mostly Gentile Christians in this congregation. 
And what they're trying to do is these false teachers have brought in these Jewish habits. And they said, you have to, to be holy, to put away sin, you have to avoid these foods. You have to pay attention to religious holidays. You have to celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday. And they said they've come in and they said, you have to do this. They've kind of put them in bondage to it. Now, we look at that in our modern-day American context, and we say that's, that's, that's not really applicable to us. But let me ask you something. How often do you see someone smoking a cigarette and think, that person's not a Christian? Or perhaps maybe their kids are more misbehaved than mine. Or maybe they're speaking in a way, and you say, you know what, I'm holier than that person. We do that. We do that often. We've built in our mind a picture of what holiness is. We have in our mind an image of what holiness looks like. Now, we do this. We compare ourselves to other people all the time. This is common. In fact, I would say that we judge other people all the time. Now, in some ways, it's important to be discerning. But when you start saying, this person is the picture of what holiness is, you start making some issues. So let me ask you a question. Can you be a non-Christian, read your Bible every day, pray, and be kind to other people? Yeah. Can you be a non-Christian and fast for weeks at a time? Yeah. We, we use all these human behaviors to determine what holiness is and what holiness isn't. And that's not right. That's what Paul is saying, look out for. Just because these people don't eat these foods, just because these people observe the Sabbath day, just because these people have festivals and new moons and they they practice them and they look at you and say, you're not holy if you don't do what we're doing, doesn't make them holy. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that does not make you holy. Legalism does not make you holy. Seven steps to a happy, healthy, holy life doesn't work. All right? It's not this, this step program. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's addressing these people in, in such a way that he's trying to point to what really makes you holy. And then he says this in verse 17. He says, these are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Now think about a shadow for a minute. Where do you get a, why do you have shadows? Because it points to something else, right? It points to a structure. You look at a shadow of a building, you're not going to think, oh man, that's a cool shadow. You know, you think, oh, that's a nice building. We were at the Grand Canyon uh, yesterday and we got to see the sun into this ginormous canyon. And we were looking at all the colors and it was just beautiful. And the more you look at it, the more you say, there's a creator. This Grand Canyon is a shadow of the beauty of the Creator. And now, obviously, there's tons of atheists that go there, and they say, man, that was a great accident that happened. And, and we laugh a little bit because it's funny, but we, we take the same aspects and say, man, that, that person must be super holy because they abstain from this. They are perfect. But guess what? That's not how holiness works. All right, Hebrews 10.1 says this, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come 
and not the reality itself of these things. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Paul is saying that Christ is the perfect substance. That's the, stubs, that's the substance that we go for. That's, the, that's what we should be worshiping, not these new moons and ha- fat, um, festivals and all these other things, these self-made religions. But then he continues on. He goes into verses 18 through 19, and he talks about mysticism. You do not grow in holiness by mysticism or experiences. So verse 18, he says this, let no one condemn you. Now this word condemn is kind of has the same um, thing of like an umpire determining the rules and saying you're out or you're in. He's like, don't let anyone umpire you out of the game. He's like, just because you don't have this doesn't mean that you are not pursuing holiness. So let's see what he says. 18, no one condemn you by delighting in aesthetic practices and the worship of angels. Now, this is a difficult verse to translate, the worship of angels. So we don't know if it's they were worshiping angels or they were worshiping with angels or what they were doing with these angels. But what we do know is that they were worshiping with or worshiping angels instead of Christ. They were saying that they have reached this higher plane of existence. They've had these superior experiences. There's these three characteristics that we'll see of these type of false teachers. The first characteristics is they have a commitment to perceived higher forms of worship. Where in Scripture does it say that we need to worship angels? Where in Scripture does it say that we need to worship with angels? They've, they've moved beyond Scripture. Remember how I talked about some of my liberal professors in my undergraduate program who talked about how they've grown beyond the basics of the gospel, right? And these, that's what these, these false teachers have done. They've moved beyond the basics, and so they've, they've been committed to this perceived higher form of worship. So if you're not worshiping with the angels, or you're not worshiping the angels, you're not really holy. And they're having these ecstatic experiences. Now, does this sound familiar today? Are there any types of believers that believe that they have to have a special experience to become more holy? Perhaps a second baptism of the Holy Spirit these experiences to make you more holy. Then number two, false teachers sought to induce forms of higher worship or experience. They were never satisfied. Think about that for a minute. So not too long ago, there was this big um, newspaper thing about a church in, uh, called Bethel in California. They're very charismatic. They're very, um, I, I would say they're a cult, but they They really do pursue this higher experience, and they believe in the healing and resurrection from the dead. And one of their main worship leaders' child died. I think it was like a three-year-old. And instead of mourning the loss, like what we're supposed to do, they said, you know what, we're all going to pray, lay hands on, and try to raise this child from the dead. And they did this for several days. Finally, they gave up and had a funeral like they were supposed to. But think about that for a minute. What causes people to think like that? It's this desire for a higher and higher levels of experience. 
You have to have these experiences. And so Paul, he says, let no one condemn you by delighting in these practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to visionary realms. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. Well, uh, the third aspect of this false teacher is unspiritual minds that puff them up. This way of thinking puffs up the worshiper without a cause. It produces a false pride which leads to a haughty disposition. Such religious experiences seem to the natural mind to be a genuine spiritual insight. You think that you're having this spiritual experience. You think that you have an additional insight. Now, this is not uncommon to human beings. So let's say that early on in your Christian life, you've started studying the Bible and you become knowledgeable in Scripture. Say that you um, start experiencing a closer intimacy with Christ and you start getting this relationship. Well, people start to notice. And they start saying, man, that guy is a holy guy. He is progressing in Christianity. He is progressing in his relationship with Christ. Now, that person can become puffed up. That person can start being puffed up in themselves. And so instead of pursuing Christ, the head, the source, what do they do? They start saying, I'm going to do this to make myself be more holy. I'm pursuing holiness. I'm pursuing looking holy. And you pursue that behavior instead of the the source. So we have that tendency within ourselves to become prideful. Pride is really a source of a lot of other sins. And so these false teachers are growing in pride, and they don't have a genuine spiritual insight. But they say that they do. They have these visions, these dreams, these prophetic words for 2020. Right? There's a lot of play on words that you can do with 2020. 2020 vision, right? And so they have all these visions of what is going to happen to you. You have a prophetic word that you can um, say over yourself, and you're going to gain, you know, less weight and have more money or, or whatever, right? And so they, they do this. And this progression kind of seems likely as they start to worship with the angels, it leads them to fulfill or to feel like they're possessing more and more of this spiritual experience. And then these experiences in turn produce a way of thinking which prized the false teachers and perpetuated the entire process. That's why that a lot of these, these so-called prophets from the charismatic movement open schools, vision schools, how to have visions. So just be aware. Now we move into verse 19. Verse 19 says this, he does not hold on to the head. So he's talking about the false teacher. This is what the false teacher does not do. He does not hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with the growth of God. This is a growth that comes from God. So he's saying these people, instead of saying, you have all you need in Christ, you don't need something plus Christ, you just need more of Christ, they're saying we need to add these things. What Paul is saying is, no, you just need more of Christ. Because that's who brings the growth. God is the one who brings the growth in your life. Not through your own effort. That doesn't work. Not through your own experiences, your mystical experiences. It is only through growth that comes from God. And so I think about this as a farmer. If you're a farmer, where does the growth come from? Not from yourself. Now you labor in it. You place seeds. You dig the ground. But who provides the growth? 
If I was a farmer and I started becoming really prideful in my ability to grow crops, that would be foolishness. You would laugh because you say all it takes is one drought and you failed. But that's what these false teachers are doing. Instead of saying growth comes from God, they say growth comes from my personal experiences that they continue to chase after. And then the third thing is you grow in holiness not by aestheticism. Now, I've said a lot, I've been practicing that word a lot because it's a difficult word to say. But really, all it means is to beat your body into submission, to, to deprive yourself in order to gain higher experiences. And so, throughout Christian history, there has been people who have practiced aestheticism. They have worn hairy clothes with hair on the inside to be itchy and scratchy and to bother them. They have laid on hard concrete things and tried to sleep, or they deprive themselves from sleep, or they don't eat for weeks at a time, or they um, deprive themselves of some way, or if they sin, they beat their bodies with uh, whips and cut up in the backs and then put salt on it. They do all these things in order to not sin. And Paul is going to address this in verse 20. In verse 20, he says this, If you died with Christ to the elements of the world or the basic elements of the world, why do you live as if you belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? And then he gives some examples of these regulations in 21. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And then 22, all these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. 23, although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. We put regulations in the body of Christ, and we say, don't taste, don't touch, don't do that if you want to be holy. And what we see is that that's not going to work. Let's continue. They appear helpful but they don't actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. They appear to make you not be sinful. I mean, you think about it. If you are someone who beats your body every time you sin, you think you would stop sinning, right? But does that work, honestly? Does that really work? Think about it. If I beat my children when they misbehave, am I really addressing the root cause? No. And when we beat our bodies and we discipline our bodies in this way, we're not addressing the root cause of the behavior. We're not addressing the root cause of our sinfulness because it's our thoughts our, and, and, our, and our heart and our affections. That's the root cause of a lot of our sin. Um, so we live in Arizona, as you all know, I hope. And as you look out at your yards, most of us have zero scaping, right? We put some rocks in there and a couple cactus and we call it good. And I'm a very happy man because I sold my, my lawnmower when we left Texas. And my neighbor, though, has some, I don't know if I, I don't want to call it grass, but it's weeds, really. And they take a weed eater and they just chop them down and make them low. But anyways, if, while it grows, it looks nasty. It looks terrible. And so what they do is they take a weed eater and they chop them all down, right? And it looks nice for a minute because you can't really tell if it's a weed or not, or if it's grass. But they take the easy way out. Instead of plucking those weeds or spraying them with some chemical that you're not allowed to do, 
Instead of doing that, they just chop them down and cut it low. And that's what this is doing. This is what aestheticism does. You're chopping down the behavior, and it looks good for a little while, but then it grows into something worse. And so this is so much how we do, like, like our sin. Our sin tends to come back. So people who have struggled with pornography have this problem. They, they fall into sin and temptation, and they ask for forgiveness. They, they cry out. They say, I'm sorry. And then within a few weeks, maybe a year, it comes back again. It's weird. It's weird how our sins come back again over and over again. Well, it's because these aesthetic practices of don't handle, don't taste, don't touch doesn't work. So what does work? Well, we're going to have to come back next week to get a full picture of what really works. But I want you to, uh, I want to give you something because obviously now I've like put, implanted this, this question, what's going to work to stop sin in my life? So let's go ahead and look at 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 9. And yeah, 2 Peter chapter 9, if I can find it. 2 Peter chapter 1, sorry, verses 3 through 9. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. Godliness is another way you can say holiness or sanctification. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these things he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Eight, for if you possess these things in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, the person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entering into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. Think about that for a minute. Verse 9, he has forgotten your previous cleansing of sins. Paul, in chapter 1 and, um, that we read last week, said that. He said it in a different way, but he said that. He's like, Christ has done all this for you. Your sins are forgiven. Why do you keep falling back into that world? And then in chapter 3, we're going to see why and how to avoid it. But you already have everything you need. Right here, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. So do you want happiness? That's the question. Do you want to be happy? Do you want happiness? I want happiness. I want more joy. I want more and more joy. Now, regardless of the circumstances I am in, because Paul, who was in prison, who was beaten, who was thought was left for dead a few times, was happy in Christ. 
I want that. I want that happiness. I want to see that. The first step is conversion. The first step is coming to Christ. You need a new heart because until you have a new heart, you will not have a desire for godliness, holiness, and this type of affection. You will not have it. And if you were saved in that way, what makes you think that you can work your way into happiness? You can't. So pursue holiness. Seek to be like Christ. You don't look for happiness in things. Don't think you can get it through legalism. Don't think you can get it through mysticism. Don't think you can get it through aestheticism. Make this your New Year's resolution. To seek after Jesus in his word, to grow in knowledge of him and reject lesser substitutes. These lesser substitutes that we hold on to are killing your happiness. They're killing your joy. They're distracting you from true happiness. There's a 19th century Scottish theologian named John Brown. He said this, Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. We want to have the character of God. Holy as I am holy, says the Lord. We're about to uh, sing the song, Living for Jesus. And um, Gary has chosen this phenomenal, um, phenomenal song. Verse 2 says this, and I just want you to pay attention to the words. And this is the importance of singing as a congregation, by the way, because we're singing the truth about God to one another. We're reminding each other that that's where joy and happiness is found. The world does this instinctively. That's why they make movies. That's why they put on all these self-help books because they try to tell you how to find happiness. Well, we can say, this is where our happiness is. That's why we sing as a congregation. So verse two, living for Jesus who died in my place, bearing on Calvary my sin and disgrace. Such love constrains me to answer his call. This is not a duty. When I go to the word of God, it's not a duty that I have to do this to be holy. It's a joy. It's a delight. I see the character of God in here, and I say, I want that. And that's what we do. So bearing on Calvary my sin and disgrace, such love constrains me to answer his call. Follow his leading and give him my all. If you're not living fully for Jesus today, you need to change that because you're not going to be happy. You're going to be living as a hypocrite. And you know what? The Pharisees had the word of God for hundreds, thousands of years, and they missed Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, you whitewashed tombs. Inside, you're filled with dead bones. You're dead inside. That's not what I want to be. So I'm not using legalism to make myself more holy. I am studying the word of God. I'm memorizing it. I'm meditating on it, and I'm focusing on Christ. And next week, you're going to see how to look at Christ. Set your eyes on the things above is what he says in Colossians. All right, so let's pray and get ready to sing, Living for Jesus. Almighty God, we, uh, we come before you grateful for your word. Lord, all of our efforts and works are as filthy rags before you. Father God, we don't want to be dressed in our clothing of death, but we want to put on 
righteousness, put on faithfulness. Help us to remember that you cleansed us of our sins. You took away the guilt and the shame of our past sin and brought to light Christ. So no longer are we under condemnation. No longer are we under bondage to this this soul happiness-sucking sin that lives on in our habits. Father God, teach us to destroy the habits of this world and to seek after the joy that can be found in Christ. May we be like in that parable where you said that the man found the treasure in the field and for the joy of it, sold everything else he had and grabbed and, and bought that field because that's where the treasure is. Lord, help us to, out of the joy of knowing you, Jesus Christ, sell everything we have to this world and focus on the one who brings the gift. God, be with us. Give us the power to do it. We know that your indwelling of the Holy Spirit empowers us and leads us to this. Be with us and guide us this week and this year. Father God, as these folks go throughout this year, I pray that you will make them a light in a dark place. Help them to shine with the joy of Christ to their neighbors. Help them to share the good news of who Jesus Christ is and that the bondage of sin has been broken and they do not have to live in addiction. They don't have to live in these sorrowful situations. Christ, be with us as we go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.